Well, that's a powerful song that uh, was written by Jordan Coughlin, who is the son of Bob Coughlin, who some of you may have heard of, who is um, the director of music for Sovereign Grace Ministries, and um, Jordan wrote that song, as I understand it, about his brother, who had walked away from the Lord, and uh, God brought him to the end of himself, and uh, he repented and came back to Christ. And so his brother wrote a song about his brother's testimony. And uh, it's a special family. And uh, we're thankful for uh, our association with them. And I just want you to know that our worship team, uh, or at least a good number of our worship team, is headed uh, over to Louisville this weekend to participate in uh, Bob Coughlin's uh, Worship God Conference that he puts on every year. And so uh, I think you know... Uh, uh, that uh, this team of folks uh, serves us tirelessly uh, as, uh, as uh, those who really lead us into the presence of God every week. And uh, they're here early, um, and uh, they practice during the week, and uh, they're not looking for any credit or praise uh, for themselves, but uh, I would encourage you to pray for them this week as they get away. And this is kind of a like sometimes pastors, we get away for conferences to be refreshed. Well, this is a conference for worship leaders to be refreshed. And uh, so we need to pray for our worship team because I know you appreciate them, don't you? And, uh, and so we need to be praying that the Lord would really use this time to energize them and uh, that they would come back refreshed and uh, even more effective, be able to, able to lead us uh, into the presence of God even more effectively. Um, and we always say that, um, you know, what we do uh, up on this stage uh, needs to be, should be, needs to be just simply an overflow of our own personal walk with Christ. And uh, I've always viewed my ministry as that, just an overflow of my own walk with Christ. And I know that's the heart of these uh, folks up on stage who serve us uh, week in and week out. Um, they just want uh, what they're doing up here just to be an overflow of their own personal worship uh, of Christ. And so pray that they'll be blessed this week and refreshed and encouraged and revived and that we will benefit from uh, their time away. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're finding out why so many say this is the most important chapter, not just in the book of Romans, but maybe in the entire New Testament. There's so much stuff here. Uh, for us to uh, study and to glean and grow from. And last week, we looked at one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And, and while that verse is indeed wonderful, the next two verses that we're going to study this morning are even more wonderful because they form the foundation for the promise that we looked at last Sunday in verse 28. In other words, Paul could not have made that promise that God caused all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose if what he says now, what we're about to look at today, uh, was not true. And so let's look at the next two verses, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. 
Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, what a mind full of gold that we are about to enter into. But Lord, not without its challenges. It may be that some people's hair on the back of their neck already bristled just from me reading that text because we know there's some terms here that are hard for us to grasp in our finiteness as human beings. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace by your Spirit today? Illuminate us. Give us understanding, at least as much as humanly possible today, uh, into some of these uh, deep matters of theology. And that when we come back up out of this mine, that... Uh, we would have some real practical truths to take home with us that we could put into practice in our lives. This week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, whenever we have the opportunity to share our testimony with others about how we got saved, we typically tell it from our vantage point. We talk about what we were like before we were saved, and, and then we explain how we, became, how we came to know Christ, and It may have been that you grew up in a Christian home, and as a child, you were led to Christ by your parents who prayed a prayer with you one night before you went to bed. Uh, Or you may have been a teenager who decided to surrender your life to Christ at a a winter camp or a a summer camp after hearing a challenging message from the speaker. Uh, Or you may have been in church one Sunday when the pastor preached a, a sermon that convicted you so much that... When the service is over and he gave the invitation, you got up from your seat and you walked down front and you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Or maybe you were overwhelmed by a major crisis in your life. You lost your job. You lost a child. You got cancer. You got a divorce, which drove you to God for help. And you made a promise to him that if he saw you through this trial, that you would commit to serve him for the rest of your life. Or it may have been that you were enslaved to all sorts of sin. And you were totally unhappy and stressed out with no direction in your life until a friend or coworker shared the gospel with you and you repented of your sinful lifestyle and chose to follow Christ. So from a human perspective, we, we all have a unique story of how and when we became a Christian. But from a divine perspective, none of us would have ever become a Christian unless God predetermined that we would be a Christian. The only reason we chose Christ is because God chose us to be one of those who he would rescue from sin, death, and hell. And it was the Holy Spirit who gave us the desire and the ability to turn from our sin and to place our faith in Christ. 
Now, even those of us who may understand and acknowledge God's sovereignty in our salvation, rarely, if ever, do we share our testimony from God's vantage point. Somebody comes and says, hey, how did you become a Christian? We don't say this. Well, you see, in eternity past, God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, set his affection on me and predestined to save me out of the mass of depraved, damned humanity and make me one of his children who would live forever with him in heaven rather than suffer the just consequences of my sin in eternal torment in hell. And when I was seven or 16 or when I was in my 40s or in my 70s, the Spirit of God called me, regenerated me, granted me repentance and faith and declared me righteous before him and is now in the process of sanctifying me and transforming me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and one day he will glorify me. That's not something we normally say or hear, but based on what the Bible teaches, that's precisely how we got saved. And in our text today, we are given a behind-the-scenes look at God's sovereign activity in our salvation. Paul explained exactly how and why God saved us. Now, I need to warn you that many believers react negatively to some of the theological concepts that Paul mentioned in this passage regarding the sovereignty of God in salvation. The content of these verses has fueled many heated debates among Christians throughout church history. But what Paul said here, I think, is a whole lot easier to swallow if we keep in mind that he was simply looking at the process of salvation from God's point of view rather than from our point of view. In other words, he focused on what God did to save us rather than on what we did, which arouses the age-old tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to salvation. And you know, throughout God's word, there are verses that emphasize that God is sovereign over our salvation, while at the same time, there are Verses that emphasize that we are responsible for our salvation. In fact, there are some verses or passages where these two seemingly incompatible, contradictory truths are taught side by side without any apparent attempt to reconcile them. For example, Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Who's coming? Who's drawing? I don't understand. It seems like anyone can come, but no one can come unless the Father draws him. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, when Peter preached uh, his message, his first message after Pentecost, this is what he said, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. 
So is it that we need to repent and believe or do we just need to wait to be called? Well, something I heard years ago has helped me learn to live with what appears to be an illogical, irreconcilable, irreconcilable conundrum. And that is a simple picture of a doorway leading into heaven. And over that doorway, it says, whosoever will may come. And so we're like, okay, I want to go to heaven. And so we step through the doors of heaven and we get into heaven and we turn around and on the, above the door on the inside of heaven, it says chosen before the foundation of the earth. Which is it? Yes. But when we're standing outside looking from our vantage point at heaven, it's whosoever will may come. Whoever wants to be saved can be saved. But once we come to know Christ, and uh, we learned the family secret, right? The family secret is that we were chosen before the foundation of the earth. This is some of the, the challenges that we face when we look at verses 29 and 30. But again, we need to remember the context of these verses and Paul's aim in emphasizing God's sovereignty in salvation here in Romans 8, again, was to provide us comfort and hope in the midst of the pain and the suffering that we experience living in this sin-cursed world, living in a sin-cursed body as we eagerly anticipate the return of Christ when we will be glorified and all things will be restored to their original state of perfection. And so again, everything Paul's saying in this chapter is for the purpose of comforting and reassuring us. And essentially what Paul wanted believers to know is that our future is secure. That no matter what might happen to us in our lives, God will be faithful to complete his work of salvation. And since God is sovereign in our salvation, there is no possible way that we can or ever will lose our salvation. This is what we call eternal security. Once saved, always saved. And this passage is perhaps the, the clearest and most explicit proof of this truth in the entire word of God. God's sovereignty in salvation ensures our eternal security. In other words, our Eternal security is based on the fact that God initiated and accomplished our salvation all by himself. You may have heard the term monergism. In fact, there's a great website, monergism.com or .org, I can't remember, but it has a tremendous uh, uh, wealth of resources uh, all about God's sovereignty and salvation. Monergism.com, monergism.org. I'm not sure again what it is, but monergism simply means mono, right? One, that salvation is monergistic, that it's all a work of God. And so in these two verses, what Paul did here was he traced God's grand design of salvation from eternity past to eternity future by laying out 
five sequential steps that God takes to save sinners like you and save sinners like me that undeniably affirm the eternal security of all those who believe in Jesus. Theologians refer to these five stages of salvation that Paul mentions here as the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. Commentators for centuries have referred to this passage as the golden chain of salvation, which is made up of five unbreakable links. What are these five unbreakable links, these five stages of salvation, these five sequential steps that God takes to save sinners like us? Number one is foreknowledge. Number two is predestination. Number three is calling. Number four is justification. And number five is glorification. And these are five words that are five of the most important theological concepts that every believer needs to understand. And leave it to the Apostle Paul to cram them all into two verses. And so we're going to do our best to get through all these this morning but, but just know that we're going to be just, uh, in many ways, skipping across the surface because these are deep theological truths um, that many have studied for years and they're still realizing that they haven't even begun to plumb the depths, okay? So let's look at these five sequential steps God takes to save us. Number one is foreknowledge. Notice he says, for those whom he foreknew, for those whom God foreknew. The, the four there connects these two verses with the last phrase in verse 28, to those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul is about to explain God's purpose for saving us or the reason why God saved us. And we find it here later in this verse, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become, what? Conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so he's building up to this purpose. But first, he says, for those whom he foreknew. Now, in the English word, foreknow means to know something ahead of time, which is why so many interpret this to mean that God, in his omniscience, looked down the quarters of time and saw those who would choose to repent and believe and consequently chose them to be his children. Well, that might sound right, but it is both grammatically and theologically incorrect. From a theological standpoint, when God looked down if indeed that's what he did, if, if God looked down the quarters of time, he didn't see anyone seeking him, let alone choosing to repent and believe in him. Psalm 14, verse 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul quoted that Old Testament passage in Romans chapter 3. You might remember that. So from God's viewpoint, all he saw was a bunch of sworn enemies 
who were rebelling against him and who deserve nothing but hell. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Colossians 1.21 says that we were hostile towards God. And furthermore, if foreknew means that God looked down the quarters of time and chose to save those who he knew would repent and believe, then our salvation is based on our good works, our merit, rather than God's grace and mercy. His choice of us was not dependent on our choice of him. Our salvation was sovereignly initiated by God, not us. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I, what? Chose you. Now, granted, we had a choice in the matter. And that's why we're exhorted in scripture to choose. Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom you'll serve. And we are commanded to repent and believe. Jesus said that, Mark 1, 15. The kingdom of God is a hand, repent and believe the gospel. But based on what the Bible teaches regarding man's total depravity or inability is another way to look at it, which means that sin has completely corrupted every part of us, including our minds, our bodies, and our wills. And so when given a choice regarding receiving Christ or rejecting Christ, we can only and will always choose to reject Christ. And we cannot repent and believe as a result of our own free will. And again, we're going to look at this more when we get to chapter 9, that we are saved not based on our free will or our own will, but based on God's will, sovereign will. But nevertheless, we are free to choose when it comes to salvation. The problem is we're never going to choose Christ. Why? Because our will is bound by sin. If you want to study this a little bit more uh, and you're brave enough to uh, tackle uh, a book by Martin Luther, uh, it's called The Bondage of the Will. And it's a great uh, work about how because of our sin, our will is bound. The Bible says that by nature, we are not just spiritually deaf, and blind, it says that the, the, the God of this world has blinded the eyes, our eyes, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So we're, we're deaf, we're blind, but, but worse, we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1. What did he say? And you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And so in order to be saved, God must grant us spiritual hearing and sight and ultimately life itself. And so... God didn't choose to save us because we chose to honor and obey him. Rather, he, we chose him because he chose to love and save us, despite the fact that we rejected him and rebelled against him. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he, what? First loved us. And that's really, when you get down to it, grammatically what this word foreknew means. It communicates more than just intellectual knowledge. It's just not that God had some prior knowledge of people's actions or decision. This idea that he foreknew us 
is that he knows us or knew us personally. That refers to God setting his affection on us. He, He chose to enter into an intimate relationship with us. In fact, that's how the word know was used in the Old Testament and even in the context of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. It's not like, hey, I know you. I know your name. I'm married to you. No, he knew her. In other words, they had an intimate relationship which resulted in the conception of a child. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is what God told Jeremiah. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Amos 3, verses 1 and 2, talking about the nation of Israel, God's relationship with Israel. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's not that he didn't know all the other nations. He he knew all the other nations, but he knew Israel. In other words, he chose to set his affection upon them to have an intimate relationship with them. In fact, the New American Standard and the NIV translate translate it well. Amos 3, 2, they say, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, which gives the, the spirit of this idea of knowing. And here in the context of Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he uses this term again to describe the nation of Israel. And the way the word foreknowledge is used elsewhere in the New Testament clearly reveals it. It means to choose or to decide ahead of time in this idea of a relationship. Acts 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, talking about Christ's crucifixion. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, talking about the, the saints. Peter's referring to the saints that he's writing to, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 1 Peter 1.20, interesting, Peter says, for Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Again, God and the Son shared a special relationship for one another before the world began. You may, may remember in John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, I think it's verse 21, that Jesus warned that many who claim him as their Lord and Savior who assume they're going to heaven because of all that they do in the name of Christ will be shocked when they get there and Jesus says, depart from me, I never, what? Knew you. It's not that he never heard of them, he knows everybody. But his point is, I don't have a personal, intimate relationship with you. And so Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, And if that wasn't hard enough to swallow, right on the heels of that, he says he also predestined. This is a word used five other times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, 
verses 27 uh, and 28. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then maybe just uh, Ephesians would be another good place to turn. I love this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then again in verse 11, he says also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So whether we like it or not, this word predestined is in the Bible, and we've got to deal with it. And it literally means to mark out beforehand, to determine the outcome ahead of time. In other words, God predetermined our destiny. There, I said it, okay? God sovereignly predetermined our destiny. Now, before you take predestination to its logical conclusion in your mind, which we all tend to do, let me be quick to say this, that the Bible is reluctant to take predestination to its logical conclusion. What I mean by that is predestination is used in the Bible to describe believers, not unbelievers. Nowhere in the Bible does it explicitly say that unbelievers were predestined to be eternally damned in the same way believers were predestined to be eternally saved. Now, admittedly, there are a few passages in Scripture that seem to imply that certain people were predestined to go to hell. We're going to see one in the next chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if, Paul says, although, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. We're going to tackle that when we get there. First Peter 2.8 Peter says, those who stumble over Christ do so because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Jude 4, certain persons were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God, of our God into licentiousness and deny our, our, only, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. By the, by the way, those are the only three verses or references that I'm aware of that even hint at what is referred to as double predestination. Some people use these verses to teach what, what's referred to as double predestination or reprobation, which is the opposite of election. And they reason that if God predetermined who would be saved, then by default, he must have also predetermined who would be damned. And they picture God 
out on the playground at recess picking teams. Heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. That's not at all how the Bible describes God. And see, the natural implication, at least in our minds, is that God is equally responsible for causing people not to believe in Christ as he is for causing people to believe in Christ. But God doesn't prevent anyone from coming to faith in Christ. He simply, you ready for this? Passes over them and allows them to keep right on doing what they're doing, which is rebelling against him, and allows them to keep right on going where they're already going, which is what? Which is where? Hell. See, the Bible says we are all by nature objects of God's wrath and are destined for hell. That's where we're going. But God, the good news of the gospel is that God, in his love and his grace and his mercy, chooses to rescue some of us. And so the emphasis in Scripture is that God chooses those who go to heaven, but men choose to go to hell. And even those, even those, so those few verses that I read earlier that appear to teach that some people were predestined for hell clearly highlight or emphasize their disobedience and denial of Christ. And so we have to keep in mind that based on what we, how God has revealed himself to us in his word, that he desires all men to come to repentance and be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So God desires all men to come to repentance and all men to be saved, but men refuse to repent and are condemned to hell as a result of their own unbelief. And Jesus made that clear in John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So in the end, when it's all said and done, every believer will be totally indebted to God for their salvation. And in the end, when it's all said and done, every unbeliever will be solely responsible for their damnation. I smell smoke. Right? Mind's trying to absorb this and sort this all out in your head, but... I hope you can tell that I'm trying to be faithful and consistent with the emphasis of Scripture here and uh, be true to the Word and not emphasize one thing to the exclusion of the other, right? But somehow live in this tension that we see in the Scriptures. That at the end of the day, we're just going to have to wait till we get to heaven to fully understand it. But there is something that I think is simple to understand, easy to understand. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, no, no, no notice, he doesn't say go to heaven or hell. 
That's not his point of bringing up this subject, this awkward subject of predestination. He says he also predestined, and here it is, used once again, as it is most always used, in a positive context. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That God's ultimate goal in saving us was not to keep us out of hell, but was to glorify himself by conforming us to the image of his son and to restore us to the way he originally created Adam and Eve. God created us in his image so that we would reflect him in this world. But ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God's image in man has been distorted. And so that's why he sent his son Jesus to earth to show us how he always wanted us to live. What what did it look like to be a perfect reflection of God? That was Jesus. And so as believers... God predestined or marked us out ahead of time to be one of those that he would transform into the image of Christ. And we know that when Christ comes or calls us home, we will be perfect just like he is. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Excuse me, chapter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, our citizenship is in heaven from also, which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then of course, 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it was not appeared as yet what we will be, yet we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So God predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son, but don't miss this, so that there's even more. So it wasn't just that, it wasn't just uh, the, 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 the ultimate end was so that we're like Jesus. That's not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is that Jesus would be exalted far above all of us so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You remember earlier in this chapter, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, Paul explained how God has adopted us as his children, which makes us his heirs and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. In other words, we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, you're Jesus' brother or you're Jesus' sister. That's the way the Bible describes it. But as the firstborn... Jesus is first in rank and in honor. He is our superior and he surpasses all of us and rightfully holds the place of preeminence way beyond us. Colossians 1.18, he is also head of the body of the church and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself, Christ, will come to have preeminence or first place in everything. 
So again, salvation is not about us, ultimately. It's not about us. Even as great as becoming like Jesus is and will be, it's not about us. It's ultimately about Christ. So that he would be exalted. That he would be honored. That he would reign supreme. One commentator said it this way, God was not satisfied to have a family with an only child. Indeed, the entire human family, all the descendants of Adam and Eve were to have been his family, living in fellowship with him for eternity. But since the rebellion of man, it has been his purpose to redeem a family for himself out of the fallen race. So again, we get to be Jesus' brothers and sisters, but not to compete with him or to compare with him, but to exalt him and worship him and serve him. So there's foreknowledge. There's predestination. We're not out of the woods yet because we got this third one called calling. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined, he also called. This is a a reference to how those that God predestined before time began are invited to receive that salvation in time. Again, he already mentioned it in verse 28, to those who are called according to his purpose. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, as he was introducing himself to the Romans, that he was the believers in Rome, he said, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. So what is this call or calling that Paul was referring to. Well, there's really two calls that we need to understand. There's uh, what's called a a general call, okay? God extends a general call to all mankind to be saved. Isaiah 45, 22, God heralded forth across the planet, turn to me, All of you who live, essentially, for I am God, then there is no other. So he, he uttered this, this general call. Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That was a general call. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we already referenced this. Jesus, first words out of Jesus' mouth, according to Mark, uh, were the kingdom of God's hand, uh, repent and believe. It was a general call to everybody that was listening to him. And so God's general call, or you could call it, you could, you could uh, term it uh, God's universal call to come to him in repentance and faith is widely rejected and consequently people remain unconverted. Even though everyone in here, everyone in this town, everyone in this County, everyone in this state, everyone in this country, everyone in this world has been called to repent and place their faith in Christ. 
it's wildly rejected. And that's why there's so many unconverted people. But God extends a, another kind of call. It's a, a special call to the elect, which is irresistible and inevitably results in their salvation. This is what the, theologians call uh, the effectual call. And God's effectual call, in other words, it's effective. It accomplishes its result. It, it results in conversion. It's effectual. And it, it involves the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit who enables us to not only hear the gospel, but to understand the gospel. And he convicts us of our sin and he regenerates us and he grants us repentance and faith. This is the, the concept of, of, of calling. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that, they, excuse me, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, talking about how God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Again, so what are we talking about here? We're talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And one of the steps that God sovereignly takes to save us is this calling. He calls us. And so we've got foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and then something that shouldn't give us any heartburn whatsoever because we've already discussed it ad infinitum here, justification. Justification. And these whom he called, he also justified. This is the, the main theme or subject of, of the first five chapters in this letter. And again, we've been learning and studying about how justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul has over and over again reminded us that justification is not based or, or getting right with God, I guess is another way to say that, is not based on our works. Chapter 3, verse 24 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so we know that to be justified means to be declared righteous by God. That God declares us righteous by virtue of the fact that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ so that we are fit to spend eternity with him in heaven. Christ life of perfect obedience 
is imputed or credited to our account, while at the same time, our sinful disobedience is imputed or credited to Jesus' account. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God. Again, in other words, God treats us as if we live Jesus' life, even though all we ever do is sin. And he treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived our life, even though he never sinned. That's justification. And again, if you want to dive more into that concept, well, go back and read Romans chapter 1 through 5. So we have foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and then finally, we have glorification. Notice, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is really what's in the front of Paul's mind here when he's writing all this. Again, remember the context, verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And in some ways, what follows there in verses 18 and following is kind of a parenthesis saying, oh, by the way, before you are glorified, you're going you're gonna to face a whole lot of stuff, a <laughs> whole lot of suffering, a whole lot of pain on this earth. And you're going to groan and creation even groans and, and you've got the groaning of the spirit to help you. And, 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 but he's back now to, to, to where he was headed with this whole idea of being glorified. And glorification is, is the final act God will accomplish in our lives the moment we die or when Christ returns, whereby all of our sins will be permanently removed and we will be perfectly conformed to Christ for all eternity. And we will have a glorified body like Christ has and we will get to reign with Christ over the new heavens and the new earth. And so glorification is, is the grand finale, if you will, of God's sovereign plan of salvation. It's like the end of the fireworks show, right? When you're just watching the fireworks and it's pretty amazing. You're like, wow, ooh, ah, wow. And then all of a sudden it just goes crazy. It just goes ballistic at the end, right? And they just shoot up all this stuff at the same time. And it's just like the best part of the whole show. It's the grand finale. Well, that's glorification. Now notice what he said here, and these whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense. We might have expected Paul to say, and these whom he justified, he will glorify, or they will be glorified, because we're not glorified yet. You don't look very glorified. I don't look very glorified. I don't feel very glorified, right? But Paul wanted us to be absolutely convinced of it, that it was a sure thing, that he used the past tense. He, he was so certain that God would complete this final stage of salvation that he referred to it as if it had already happened. It's as good as done. 
That's why they call this the golden chain, the with five unbreakable links, right? You got four things happening. Well, the fifth one is assumed. It's a done deal. If you're like me, you might find it interesting that in this section of Romans where Paul was zeroing in on the subject of sanctification, right? Six, seven, and eight, all about sanctification. He didn't include sanctification as one of the steps or stages in the process of salvation where when we talk about systematic theology, right? We typically talk about justification, sanctification, glorification. Why didn't he mention that? Well, I think it's obviously implied in the fact that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. But I assume Paul left it out here since it's the one aspect in the overall process of salvation, if you will, in which we cooperate or participate with God. Work out your sanctification or salvation with fear and trembling, right? There's this idea that, 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 that um, sanctification is synergistic, not monergistic. But the point of these two verses was to stress that the initiation and the execution and the completion of our salvation from start to finish depends entirely on the sovereignty of God. Do you notice God is doing all the work in this passage? He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. We're just the whom that are being acted on in this passage. One commentator said it this way, from beginning to end, our salvation is God's work, not our own. Consequently, we cannot humanly undo what he has divinely done. This is the basis, basis of our security. And so we've talked a lot, of, a, a lot about theology this morning, but the one practical implication of all of these theological concepts and terms is our eternal security. The, the eternal security of all of those who trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. Listen, if we didn't do anything to save ourselves, then why would we think we could do something to lose our salvation? You can no more unsave yourself than you can save yourself. Which should just produce in us massive assurance of salvation. God always finishes what he starts. Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God has a 100% success rate. He's never lost a single one of those that he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And if that's not enough, Jesus himself guaranteed it. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose what? 
Nothing. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. If you know Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life because he'll make sure of it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this brief but deep, profound passage. So much here for us to chew on, grapple with. And so I pray that uh, as we work through maybe those application questions and do a little more study on our own, that you would just help us to be able to grasp a little bit better these complicated uh, concepts. But Lord, most of all, rather than these things driving us away from you, um, that they would drive us towards you in worship and, and humble praise and adoration. That we would find ourselves maybe tonight lying awake wondering, why me? Why would you have chosen me? Why did you set your affection on me? Why did you predestine me to be conformed uh, to the image of your son? And that it would just fill us with wonder, awe, and praise and a desire to want to live for your honor and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.